Hey guys, Dr. Joe Simon here. Super excited to have you on this episode. You're going to get some amazing insights, some amazing information. I think we've been saying it all the time, but when you hear it again and you hear it from a different person, from a different point of view, you're going to be amazed by this stuff. Before we dive in though, wanted to say thank you. Thank you for the emails. Thank you for the five-star reviews. And absolutely, thank you for the responses that I've gotten for the new website. Uh, really means a lot to me, guys. I appreciate all the love. Uh, if you know anyone that's selling their practice or if they're starting a practice, shoot me a message. These are the things I specialize in. This is what I want to do. It doesn't matter what profession you're in, if you're, sell- if you're selling your practice or if you're starting a practice. would love to have a conversation with you and we can schedule a quick 15-minute phone call to really see if I can help you and how we can guide you in the right path. Again, guys, enjoy the episode. And as always, shoot me a message on LinkedIn or on Twitter. Look forward to it. Talk to you soon. Welcome to the 30 and 30 podcast, where business owners and practitioners at the top of their game share the keys to their success with your host, Dr. Joe Simon. Welcome to 30 and 30. This is your host, Dr. Joe Simon. With me today is uh, um, an amazing author, but besides that, he's written a book called Built to Sell. His name is John Werrillow. John is, uh, if you've picked up this book, he's going to change your life. If you've never heard of John before, uh, this is this is going to be an amazing opportunity for any business owner, uh, private practice owner, or if you're not in healthcare, it's going to be an amazing opportunity to just listen to what the advice John's going to dispel in the next uh, 45 minutes or so. Uh, John, before I go any further, just introduce yourself to the audience and um, let them know a little more about yourself. Yeah. Hey, Joe, it's good to be with you. Yeah, we work with business owners, uh, mostly service business owners. So a lot of a lot of healthcare practitioners help them build businesses that are less dependent on them. And that's the, you know, that puts everybody in the catspurt seat. When, you're, when you've got a business that's not totally relying on you personally, you can sell it if you want to, but you, you can also just bring in a manager and run it for you day to day. It's easy for me to say that. It's really hard for for practitioners to do that. So I hope you know, you know, really excited about our session today and, and chatting about some tactics to do that. So, um, and the book, I got to tell you, I, I love the way it was made because it's an easy read to go through, but the, the stories really hit home for someone that's um, that's been in business for a little bit. It, would this make sense for someone that just started or is thinking to start a business to pick up and start going through? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's way harder to move to Titanic than it is to actually start in the right direction. So look, if you're just starting a practice, I think it makes a ton of sense to think about how do you structure it so it's not dependent on you? A lot of business owners, we 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 have Michael Gerber talked about this in his book, The E-Myth, the, the Entrepreneurial Seizure, where we're really good at something. We're an amazing massage therapist. And instead of working at some gym, we think, you know what, I could actually start my own massage therapy clinic. And so we start up and we we take on all the expenses of that, where we don't actually think about for that massage therapy clinic to be valuable to the scale it actually can't depend on you personally doing the massage therapy. And so that takes a big change in thinking to, to go from being the practitioner, being the one who does the acupuncture, does the dental you know, work, to actually running a company that does that. Absolutely. And wh- when do you think would be the right time for someone to start a business? And is it is it right for them to say, hey, I'm 
should, should I go through the, the growing pains of doing everything myself? Is that part of growth? What's that old expression, Joe? It's like, when's the best time to plant a tree? Um, <laughs> you know, the best time was 30 years ago. <laughs> the, yeah. the second best time is right now. So, look, I'm a huge believer in in entrepreneurship um, as a as a as a way to provide personal freedom and and personal expression. I I I'm just a huge fundamental believer. So, I think the right time is 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 now. Um, you know, if, if you're young and you're saying, well, maybe I'll you know, work for a practice for a few years, I'll learn about it and then start. The problem with that way of thinking is that oftentimes you, you take on all of the responsibilities of adulthood, right? You take on a house, you get married, you get kids. And then the idea of risking it all to start a practice is it becomes less and less attractive, even possible. Right. So I always tell young people, look, you know, like skin your knees a little bit, like go out, start a business, learn what it's about. Yeah, it may not be successful, but at least you're getting that real life experience. If you wait 10 years and you've got a mortgage and kids and so forth, it's a much tougher proposition. So I do it now. That's a that's a great response. But I want to touch base on risk because that's the number one thing I see with uh I don't want to call them entrepreneurs, but that's the that's the number one thing I see, especially in, in healthcare. They have a very low risk tolerance. They rather mm-hmm. collect the paycheck than take a chance. Where I, I speak to a lot of them, and they say, "Hey, listen, how do I get a paycheck and start my own business?" <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. I think the riskiest thing today is to work in the bowels of an organization you don't control. Um, and I realize that we're talking about, for the most part, uh, you know, healthcare practitioners do that may not be necessarily the frame of reference. But when you're miles away from decision making, you can actually be completely sideswiped. I, I, I come to my sister. So my sister is a uh, she's an entrepreneur. Before she became an entrepreneur, she used to work at a bank, and she was the smart one. And growing up in high school, she got all the awards for the academic, and I was the sort of dim one that my parents were worried about. <laughs> but she went to a good university. She got a great job at a bank, and she was rising quickly in that bank and really valued. All of a sudden, the bank decided to shut the entire division down, and she was let go. Under no fault of her own, she couldn't have done a better job at her work, but she was let go anyways. And it turned out to be the best thing for her because she started the business and and, and thrived ever since. But my point is that I think working for someone else is is an illusion. The idea that you'll be safe if you go work in a successful practice, I'm not so sure that's the case. Let's say you take a um, a holistic med- medical practice that's been super successful in your neighborhood, and you're, and you're like they're massage therapists, and you're like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go work for that amazing integrated health facility, and all of a sudden they decide that they don't want to do massage therapy, or there's a you know there's a, a new ruling that comes out that says that people who do acupuncture can't do massage therapy in the same clinic, whatever things that you are totally out of your control can happen, right? So I'm a big believer in actually controlling your destiny, right? If you're, a, you know, if you're a, if you've got an expertise, you can leverage that if you, you know, if you take some of the steps we'll talk about today. And that's a, that's a great example. Um, so how do we, 
how do we leverage that skill set? Like, you know, so let's say let's let's pick on physical therapists and say, okay, they come out and they say, okay, I graduated from school. Uh, I feel like I know nothing. I'm going to work for somebody for a year. But then once they f- they feel like they got their footing, now they say, okay, I'm 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 ready to go out and start my own. Uh, John, how do I how do I leverage that? What, how do I leverage my my title? How do I leverage uh, what I've learned in the last couple of years? How how do I leverage my personality? How do I leverage all of that? Yeah, so I think you have to consider who you are. We've done some psychographic research at Value Builder, and we've identified that there are three types of entrepreneurs. There are craftspeople, tree empires, and mountain climbers. I'll describe those. So craftspeople are motivated by mastery. They are the ones that are, you know, they just thrive on a patient coming in with a complicated case, and, and they are able to solve that problem. They love the doing uh, freedom fighters are really about independence. So they start a business because they just don't like being controlled by a boss or a manager. And they just want that personal freedom to decide when they want to work, what they want to do, who they want to work with, where they want to work, et cetera. And then mountain climbers are really motivated by competition and growth. They want to create, you know, a five, you know, five office health facility. They want to build out an entire business. Um, and they love the challenge associated with that. And I think to answer your question, Joe, I go back to really some self-reflection as to which of those three buckets you fall into. Um, craftspeople are, are never going to be building a business that is worth anything. They will potentially make a good living if they solve patients' problems but they will never build a practice that would be transferable. And that's okay. As long as you are taking out your profits each year and you're conscious about paying yourself first, you can have a wonderful life as a craftsperson. Just don't confuse it with business ownership. It's really, it's really a job dressed up as a business. If you're a freedom fighter and really what you want is independence, what you've got to structure is, is a, is a, practice that can run without you, wherein you decide a a service to offer, you hire physiotherapists, in the case of the physiotherapy example, that can deliver the service you envision um, that frees you personally up from doing the work. If you're a mountain climber, what you really want to think about is is, is how do I scale and grow this company? Um, It's it's likely to be an integrated practice. Uh, You know, you've got to think about how you recruit other doctors or healthcare uh, professionals, uh, find other craftspeople. So I would go back to long-winded answer to your question, Joe, but I would go back to, you know, in my heart of hearts, am I a mountain climber, freedom fighter, or a craftsperson? I absolutely love that, John. I think it, it's it breaks down the psychographics well, but I, I can I'm sitting here thinking about people within my own um, practices that I own, and I can say, wow, that 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 partner is a craftsperson. That person's the mountain climber. That person's the freedom fighter. And you kind of look through and you say, huh, I can see why he's he's urging, like, hey, let's let's get to the next one. Let's open up the next one already, right? And then you can see the other guy is just like we're just sitting back and just. Uh, loving the fact of, you know, uh, working with a, a tough case, right? So absolutely love that. How do you know now if you now quick, quick question though, can you be all three? Yeah, everybody has a blend of all three. I think we show our true colors and our dominant theme um, at key inflection points along the way. So if you're building your practice and, and you have to share some equity 
with another healthcare professional, another practitioner, and they say, hey, two plus two equals three, uh, or two plus two equals five, excuse me, we can you know, join together, but you've got to give me a, you know, a percentage of ownership in the practice. If you agree to that, you are unlikely a freedom fighter. You are much more likely to be a mountain climber because here's the thing, freedom fighters covet their independence and they don't want anyone telling them what to do or they don't want a partner who they have to get permission to go do something with. So if you're... If you have an aversion to the idea of sharing equity with your your you know a partner, um, it, it kind of almost makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. Chances are you're a freedom fighter. The, the, the most important currency to you is independence, and therefore you should probably own 100% of your company. It will be smaller, less significant than the mountain climbers business, um, but you'll you'll like it more because you will control everything about that business. Um, if you reach the same fork in the road and you're like, yeah, no problem. I mean, people two plus five, I'm happy to share a little bit of equity with a fantastic up and coming dentist or whatever. Well then absolutely. You're building a bigger business that's much larger than you. Um, but the chances are you're probably mountain climbers. I, I love that, John. And it's funny because I, I, I spoke to someone recently, a client of mine from years back. And she basically said, she goes, you know, Joe, not everyone is like you. They don't want to open up you know, a hundred clinics, they, they really, you know, I'm happy with just having my one clinic and I'm really proud of what I built and this is all I need. And I said, Hey, that's great. I'm not, I wasn't, I, you know, it was like, maybe it was just misconstrued at that point, but I'm like, I wasn't telling her to open a hundred clinics. I, I was giving her options for growth, but it, it's good to see because that, that, that explanation explains so much more of how that person was thinking and why they were thinking that way. But to let's get into this point now, now that they know who they are, how do we know what, like it, the whole concept of building the business so it's sellable one day, even if you're, even if you're that craftsperson or that freedom fighter, that concept is something that changed the way I thought about when I opened up my own businesses. Um, where, where should someone start when they get, besides the, the three steps of knowing who they are, where should they start when they, when they first get going? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the kind of core idea is we, you know, built to sell is about how do you build a sellable company? And you might say, well, I don't want to sell my company. And that's irrelevant. What you want is a company you could sell because that means it's not dependent on you personally. And that gives you all the cards at the table, right? You, you could choose to sell it. You could choose to bring in a manager. You could choose to sell half of it to a private equity group and, and you know, continue to run the other half. It gives you lots of options. Um, if, if you want to build to sell and you're a healthcare provider, I think the, the core idea is that you've got to figure out your TVR. TVR stands for teachable, valuable, repeatable. And really what it means is that you've got to figure out a service, um, a treatment that you can provide that meets three criteria. It's got to be teachable to employees. It's got to be valuable to customers. And it's got to be repeatable, meaning patients need to come back and have that service performed again and again. TVR, teachable, valuable, repeatable. So, you know, the, the kind of main idea is that if the, the, the patient needs you personally to do the service, you're never going to build a business that, 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 you know, thrives without you. Let's take a dental practice, for example. If you are the world's greatest, you know, physician uh, at, at, at basically doing root canals, well, the root canal is a relatively complex dental procedure. It's going to be very, very difficult for you to teach a you know young up and coming certainly not a dental hygienist not certainly not an assistant you'd have to teach 
a, a, a fully licensed dentist and then you'd actually, it would take them years to learn the procedure. That's not a great service to offer or specialize in. Unlike, for example, if you were running a dental practice cleaning, you can hire people to do dental cleaning. So there's an element of teachability to it. Then you get to value. Value is the second of the three components. Value doesn't mean how much you charge for it. It means how valuable is that service coming from you as a dental firm, as a dental office. In the case of teeth cleaning, you might argue that it's actually relatively low value. In other words, it's commoditized. So you'd have to add something to the way you approach a dental cleaning procedure, that six-month checkup, that made it different than every other dental practice in your town. So you've got to add some secret sauce to it, add some element to it. Um, maybe they get a massage at the same time. Maybe they get their favorite music. Maybe there's some you know extra special way that you do the six-month cleaning that sets you apart from others, increasing your score and value. And then repeatable. Here's the thing. I've had one root canal in my life and I have no interest in having it again. <laughs> it was brutal. <laughs> and so hopefully most of your patients feel the same way. In other words, if you specialize in root canals, that's not a great way to get a recurring revenue stream. Whereas if you do cleaning, guess what? We all come back every six months to have a cleaning. So if I were a dentist, my practice would be focused on cleaning but I'd be thinking about how do I differentiate my cleaning service from the other guys down the road that do exactly the same thing. Uh, Teachable, valuable, repeatable, TVR. TVR, that is a great acronym. I love that. Um, and it, it, I think back on different things, and, you, and when you explain stuff to staff, that's the, that's the most difficult part, right? Because you have to see that. Can your staff do it like you? Can they be able to, uh, can they, again, explain it to the clients the same way you have been doing it? And that's probably the, one of the biggest complaints I hear from healthcare practitioners, from phys- uh, physicians to orthopedics to physios, chiros. They all have the same thing. And, and I'm going to give you the classic line, John. The classic line is, no one can do it as good as I can. That is the classic right. line that I hear from every one of my clients in the past, right? So, so where's your thinking on that? In part, it's because they're offering too many services, right? So, you know, if, if you are a chiropractor, as an example, well, you've gone to chiropractic college, you've got all of the, you know, the various treatments that you can provide. Part of becoming a great chiropractor is seeing things repetitively again and again and again. The first year or two, you're probably pretty rusty, and you're not great at diagnosing people's issues and figuring out how to, you know, deal with the various treatments. But after 20 years running, you know, being a chiropractor, you can probably see a car accident victim come in and relatively quickly ascertain what treatment they need because you are an expert. How did you get that way? Reps. It's like any athlete, right? Reps, reps, repetition, repetition, repetition. And after a 20-year career, guess what? Nobody can do it as well as you. So the key to getting employees to do it as well as you is shorten the time it takes them to get your level of experience. How do you do that? You reduce the number of things you offer. If you shorten the, the, the if you shorten the service list, in other words, you know, give customers or give employees the ability to do reps much more quickly, they can actually get to your level of competence much faster than if you continue to do all types of uh, you know uh, uh, services in your practice. It's going to take them twenty years to get as good as you because. It took you 20 years, whereas if you just do tennis elbows, 
um, and you become the world guru at treating tennis elbow, guess what? You can train chiropractors right out of chiropractic college how to treat tennis elbow. It has actually probably three of the, you know, the same three moves you do on everybody to alleviate tennis elbow. It's that level of repetition that allows you to train other people to be as good as you. I love that concept where you're really narrowing down to just one or two things where you're saying, hey, look, we are good at this. We are the experts in this exact thing. So it, it, it goes back to the concept of niching down. Uh, do you agree with that? I agree 100%. And, and, you know, here I am on some phone call with you, Joe, and it's all very easy for me to, you know, sound, you know, like I, I, I know how I would do it in your shoes. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a dentist. I'm, I'm a, a guy who runs a software company. So, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, I, I'm not, I don't want to diminish the difficulty of what I'm suggesting people do. I'm saying it in a glib and somewhat superficial way. I realize how difficult it is to, if you're a chiropractor, go from treating every kind of patient to treating a specific kind of patient. What I would, what I would encourage people to do as they niche down or niche down is to, is to focus on it as a journey as opposed to like ripping off a Band-Aid. You know, there is tremendous value for you in your firm, for your associates to stop doing some of the more complicated things you're doing today. To go back to the dental practice, there's tremendous value in saying we're going to outsource the really complex periodontal work, right? We're just going to do that because it's the stuff that gets us in trouble. Just that one decision and referring it out is going to make your life easier. Um, if you then start to whittle away your services over time and just start to niche, niche and niche down, I think some people, when I talk about these ideas, they hear like crazy, you know, it would be like ripping off the band you did to go from being a general practitioner to being a guy just at a tennis elbow. I'm not suggesting you do that overnight, but I am suggesting that over time, you start to winnow away some of the, the breadth of what you do, some of the breadth of services you offer. So absolutely niching down, but it doesn't have to be overnight. It can be more of a gradual process. Absolutely. And uh, when and I appreciate that you're saying that. And uh, I think the advice I've given, my, uh, given the audience over the years <clears throat> of listening to me, they realize that even though you you uh, niche down to just say, you know, we're just going to pick on the, the elbow right now. You say you niche down to the elbow. It doesn't stop you from attracting other clients that come in and say, hey, can you work on my shoulder? Can you work on my wrist? You're still able to get the other clients from that. Um, <clears throat> the classic example is a client of mine that works with pelvic pain for for females. And, um, and it's a great, it's a great, and I say it's one of my, it's one of my favorite niches because she not only brings in those clients, but once they do come in, they say, you know, I know we're dealing with this very intimate issue that I have, but I also have an issue with my shoulder. I also have an issue with my ankle and they're able to get more, you know, that, that frequency of visit increases just because they attracted this person that has a very intimate issue, right? So the, the, I think the audience completely gets it. And if, they, if they're, they're catching on, but I love what you said about the fact that doing the reps and, you know, after 20 years, guess what? Yeah, I am the best at doing that. But, uh, you know, John, uh, John Doe over there that just started uh, last week, he, it's, he doesn't have 20 years. Let's, how do we speed up that, uh, that time, that, that time frame? That for, learning curve. Yeah, that yeah. learning curve. Yeah. Uh, oh. It also, it also makes you immensely more referable. So if you're the world's expert on dealing with pelvic floor 
whatever whatever <laughs> that would be. I yeah. Don't know. Guess what? If you run across somebody who has an issue in that area, you're easy to refer to. I know the world's greatest pelvic floor specialist. Easy to refer you. Whereas if you're just a general practitioner and you do shoulder pain, pelvic floor issues, and and knee you know problems, it makes you very hard to refer. And that's one of the real magics of of, of niching down. It increases your referability exponentially. Absolutely, and I, I, I that's something that we've kind of drilled into uh, clients and and listeners over the years. Just really becoming more referable, so it's easier for your client to say, "Hey, I know someone that can handle this for you." Right. So, all right. So we got the the niche down, and we got the we got the concept of being able to train your employees. Now, here's the thing, right? You want to have a business that could run without you, or relatively speaking, not you, not absolutely there, but. How do you how do you find these employees? I mean, in the software business, is it is it difficult to find programmers? Or uh, again, I'm not I'm I'm reaching here. I'm not sure who you would hire for. Yeah, yeah. Again, <laughs> yeah. again, it, it comes down to niching down. So, is it hard to is it hard to hire a dentist out of dental college? Well, yeah, because they want to repay their, their debt, and and and, they, and it's very expensive to hire a dentist to come work at your practice. Many of them want to start their own, et cetera much easier to find a dental hygienist as an example. Um, and and therefore what I would recommend you do again on the benefits of niching down is it allows you to hire people that are less uh, expensive. Whereas if you're a general practitioner in your general area, you've got to hire somebody who will be able to have the breadth of experience to offer all the things you do. Whereas if you if you niche down to the services that you offer, you should be able to find people um, for less money that may be overlooked by other practices because they have you know, a fairly narrow band of experience. Absolutely. So it's it, it, that's the that's the challenge that most of these providers are having when they're trying to step away. Right. We have the first comment, I, you know, no one is good as me. Second comment is, where do I find uh, I can't find good people. All right. That's the second comment that I always get. You know, where do you find these these rock stars that you're speaking of? <laughs> and uh, that's usually the problem. Um, once they get that in place, the next issue that we see is that they kind of say, hey, I got I got my uh, I got my rock star. We have a niche that we're working on. I'm good. I'm going on vacation. Right. So this is this is the argument I get from the um the population of, of practitioners that have read the e-myth and say, Joe, well, my business is not, is if I can walk away, I need to test to see if I can walk away from my business for six months. And I'm not a big fan of that because I, I say to them, I'm like, I don't think that's what they really meant in the book, guys. You have to have your foot on in, in the door at all times and you have to be able to feel the pulse of your business, right? So how do you feel, how, you know, the obviously you've read the e-myth, so you, you understand the concept of what he was mentioning. Where, where do you take that? Yeah, so I think of like a pilot, right? So a pilot, when you think about their role in a cockpit, they are constantly scanning their gauges, right? Uh, they may have autopilot engaged. They may have their feet up, but they're looking at their altimeter. They're listening for any chimes or any things that might have, you know, might suggest that you take evasive action. They're looking at their speed. They're making sure all of the things are just monitoring their dials along the way. And I think that's the ideal 
place for you to get to as a business owner where you have the key performance indicators, the leading and lagging measures in your business that you you know when to step in. A leading indicator is is like a quantitative thing that you measure that predicts something happening in the future. Whereas a lagging in, indicator is a quantitative metric that you look at that basically you know shows you what happened. So like your profit and loss statement is a classic lagging indicator, right? It would be you know um, it's a way to say how you did last month, but it doesn't give you any predictive information. It's just looking in the rearview mirror. Whereas a leading indicator might be you know you might have um, the KPIs number of new pa- number of new patients that. Uh, you know, you'd served last month or, or something to that effect would be a classic leading indicator. I'm, I'm not sure what of, what are the leading indicators you guys look at, Joe? Oh, the KPIs are usually new patients that come in, how many claims that you've sent out, uh, you know, cancellations. These are KPIs that most practices uh, operate off of. The, the, the issue we usually have, John, when we come in to ask a practitioner saying, okay, hey, let's look at your KPIs. They kind of give you the two, uh, the two key words uh, I like to repeat is, huh? And the, and the what, what KPI do you want me to look at? And, you know, so they, most of them look really at, you know, the, the profit and loss statement. They look at the, you know, the net, you know, the money that the revenue that came in and the net, and they look at that monthly and they see, okay, did that go up? Did that go down? Uh, KPIs are usually when you look at someone that has more than, uh, I would say about once they get to about the fourth clinic, the two to four clinics is when they start really realizing, Hey, I really need to start knowing my numbers a little bit better, right? But usually when they're at the first clinic and then not looking at the KPIs and it's it's sad to say, but the you know, the ones that are really know their numbers, you know, those are the ones that are really going. So I like how you break that down to predictive. I think if that's explained that way, I think our listeners will really take a take a a liking to the fact that they really should know you know, how many people are coming in, how many, you know, where they're coming from, you know, the cancellation number is really important stuff. Yeah, you know, I was um, I heard about a, a business owner who had run a manufacturing plant, and he had a habit of every night he would he would instead of going home through the front door, he would go home through the back door. And the reason he did that is he was counting the trucks lined up waiting to get to the loading bay to pick up the skids of things that were ordered that day to drive home. And he would walk home uh, to his car and count the number of trucks. And he knew, for example, if it was a five-truck day, then it was a successful day. If there were only three trucks waiting in line, it had been a bad day for sales. And that was his leading indicator. It was the way he sort of measured uh, what 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 was to come in the, in the, in the weeks ahead. Um, but I think we, we want to avoid being in the weeds doing, doing the actual doing. Uh, and so I, I like to think of the, the airline pilot and, and having a set of gauge that you're, uh, that you're constantly kind of scanning. And that, that's a great analogy. Having that uh, dashboard or having that gauge in front of you to really know where your business is going is, is probably the best uh, option for someone that is really getting ready to take that next step of, of freedom, right? So if it, if it comes to the point when they get the opportunity to sell, say, you know, it's somewhere down the road. When is the best time to sell? I think that's the next question we get from everyone that's listening. Mm. What, John, when, when should I sell? Should I sell when I'm 65 and I'm, I want to go to the beach or and retire? Is that when my day of sell, selling is, you know? 
Wow, what a, what a great, great question. And there's so many ways to answer it. The, the glib, superficial way would be to say exactly the time that you least want to sell is the best time to sell because obviously your business is going to be performing well. You're all singles are, you know, uh, signs are, are pointing uh, upward and things are great. That's the perfect time to sell. I don't think that's a, a terribly um, helpful answer. I think a lot of people try to time the sale of their practice so they think, okay, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna wait till interest rates are at their lowest and the economy is booming and the stock market's on fire and you know unemployment rates low and the economy is at its like maximum point of expansion and that's when I'm gonna sell. And while you would get the highest price for your business if you do that, in other words, in that economic environment, people will pay the most, the highest multiple for your company. It's a bit of a fool's errand because if you think about it, you sell your practice, you've got to go do something with that money. You can't stick it under a mattress. And for most of us, that means we're going to you know, buy commercial real estate or we're going to put it in the stock market. Well, guess what? Both of those investment options are correlated almost one-to-one with the same economic cycles that you just sold out of. So the stock market will be at an all-time high. The commercial real estate values will be at an all-time high. And so... It, it really is a fool's error to try to, in my view, time the sale of your, of your company using external measures. I would do it more based on internal measures. So, you know, there's a, there's, the first thing you can do is, is, is have your company valued, right? I'm sure, Joe, you've done this in, in many cases for a lot of your clients. You could probably place a value on a, on a healthcare facility relatively quickly. That will give you what it's worth to the market. The next question, though, is what's it worth to you personally, right? What's it worth to you? And I think there's the tangible way of calculating that, which is, you know, like what's the income stream worth? How much would I have to, you know, sock away to get that income stream? That's a practical way to answer that question. But a philosophical way is more like, you know, what are the intangible benefits to owning this practice, right? Like I walk up and down Main Street in my town, people recognize me because I fixed their back or I, you know, filled their tubes or whatever. And I like that, right? That would be an intangible benefit. An intangible cost would be, um, you know, worrying about payroll, never being able to take a quality vacation. Um, those sorts of things are all costs that you pay every day. And so when your business becomes worth less to you, because of the cost associated with it than it is to somebody else because the market will pay more for it. I think that's the right time to sell. So it means that you've got to figure out what it's worth in the market and then ask yourself, is it worth that to you today, uh, both practically and philosophically? And when the answer is actually it's worth more to someone else than it is to me, that's the perfect time to sell. Great answer, John. I actually, I, I like that a lot, right? Because I've had business partners in the past um, speak to me and say, hey, look, when when should we give this thing up? When should we sell this this bad boy? And and, I, and look, asking me, I said, well, when do you want to, you know, they would say, hey, when do you want to retire? And I, I kind of give them the answer. Well, I, I don't want to retire. I enjoy what I do. <clears throat> you know, so I don't want to be the guy because I'm like, I'm already, um, if I really think about it, I'm already at that retirement mode. I'm not I'm not breaking rocks for a living, and uh, you know, I, you know, I enjoy the intangible benefits of the business, right? So mm-hmm. that's the that's the difference, right? So I have bought and sold businesses, and <clears throat> we do valuations for uh, uh, practices right now, 
And it's the most classic question. And I like how you explained it. I think, you know, I'm going to let them listen to this, this episode because I say, hey, look, I think John's explaining this extremely well. And it might give them some insight because everyone does look for that, you know, where is the economy at? Is that in the interest rates are, you know, but the number one question is, what do you do with that money once you get it? You know, and I don't have the answer. And I tell them right away, I say, I don't have this answer, but you have to be able to figure this part out. What do you do with that money once you do sell? And you get it. If it's a multiple of one, two, three, 15, whatever it is, what do you do with that money? And that's the, that's the part no one thinks of. And that's a, it's a scary yeah. part too. And I'll tell you what, as, as a practice owner becomes more and more successful, it becomes a disproportionately large portion of your net worth. And for a lot of people, they get squeamish about that, right? So when you start a practice and you're letting some space and you're just one guy or gal, your business isn't really worth much. But if you've got 20 or 30 employees and four or five million dollars in revenue and you've got a commercial space that you own, guess what? That's a valuable company. And if you've been pouring all of your money into your company, it may actually be a significant portion of your net worth, more than your home, you know, more than your 401k. And the bigger the business grows, the higher proportion it is of your net worth. And you could turn around and, and, and one day think, oh my gosh, you know, 70, 80% of my net worth is in my practice. You know, what if I have a malpractice suit? What if I, I'm sick and unable to work? What if I, uh, you know, have a dispute with one of my partners? All of these things start to roll through your head. And then the psychological costs or philosophical costs I was just referring to become quite quite significant, right? The desire to diversify your wealth, uh, you know, become less dependent on one source of income um, eclipses some of the, the, you know, the intangible benefits of being a business owner. And that's, I think, when it's a great time to sell, when you just want to diversify your wealth a little bit. You know, you know John, I got to say, this has been one of probably my favorite uh, uh, episodes of recording because you, you speak my language, so I could I could chat with you all day long. But uh, yeah. <laughs> you know what what didn't I ask you? What didn't I ask you that I should have asked you? Is my is my usual my last question to a lot of my guests because I feel like there are a lot of topics that I could have hit in your book and could have picked your brain about that could have really helped the audience. But you know uh, now knowing my audience a little better and understanding uh, where we're coming from. What piece of information can you share right now with the audience that would really help them take the next step? Yeah, so I mean, we talk a lot about how to get your business ready to sell, and and that's one side of the ledger. That's one side of building a valuable company or, or having a happy and successful exit. Um, the other half, though, is are you personally ready to leave your company? So it's one thing to have a sellable company, but if you as the owner are not personally ready to sell, that can be problematic. And so uh, we actually just launched a, a product called Prescore, which is basically a, a design to evaluate whether you're personally ready to exit. But I think that's another piece that you, you want to do some thinking around. So how, you know, how much of your ego is tied up to your status as a business owner? Um, you know, how have you done some thinking around what you're excited to go do next? Guess what? There's only so much golf you can play, only so many you know, times you can talk to them, have the same conversation with your spouse. You're, you're going to want something to go do. And have you done some really hard thinking about what, what's exciting you? 
Um, there are five major drivers of a, of a happy and lucrative exit, which we measure. And I think that's, that's the other piece is, is really thinking through the personal side of the exit. And um, I think that's the one thing that we haven't touched on as much, but, but would give some serious thought to. Awesome. I love that stuff right there. So, John, if the audience want to learn more about your company, more about you, where can they find uh, more information about you? Besides the book, Build yeah. to Sell, of course, where else can they find more about you? ValueBuilder.com. ValueBuilder.com. Okay, awesome. And um, and that perfect score quiz is there for them to take there as well? Yeah, so you can get the Value Builder score, which will evaluate your business across the eight dimensions that acquirers care about. That's called Value Builder Score. And yeah, you get that at ValueBuilder.com. Prescore, the tool I just referenced, you can go to prescore.com. Awesome. I love it. John, once again, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. This is, uh, there's a lot of stuff. I think we're going to get a lot of emails about uh, just touching base on the ones that are thinking about selling right now, or even thinking about a transition, right? We do have a lot of uh, practice owners that are trying to transition out and see what the next step in life is. So this is, this is a very valuable episode for them. And uh, make sure you guys check out valuebuilder.com and, you know, sign up to John's list. I love getting the emails. There's a lot of good information on there as well. So John, thank you again for being on the show. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, John. It's good to be with you. All right. For everyone listening, make sure you check that site out, and we'll see you soon. Hey, guys. What an amazing episode. I am so happy that you listened all the way to the end. There's so many pieces of information that you can take away and implement now, and that's what you got to do. You got to take something that you've heard right now jot it down, put it into effect, right? That's called absolute implementation. So let's make sure that happens. If you haven't done so already, make sure you click on my website, drjoesimon.com. Sign up, follow me on LinkedIn, and you'll get more of this amazing information. All right, guys, I'll talk to you soon. Take care.